folks, as we've already had God's word open before us, please turn Matthew 7, that passage we've just read, just while you're settling yourself with God's word. So anybody who's been using a journal, uh, this is the last in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, but don't, don't disregard your journals, just stick them on a shelf somewhere, uh, because it's very possible that we'll come back to Matthew's gospel at some point in the future and you'll just be able to pull your journal again and go again so uh, don't don't disregard that it'll be great to have it let's pray father god as we began this series a, a number of weeks ago we recognized that jesus your son that when God comes among us we have the wisest and best teacher there's ever been we have the word made flesh in his words so Lord be with us this morning as we come to your word as we hear again the the teaching of Jesus let it penetrate deep into our hearts When we began this series, uh, we called it Discipleship 101 because we said that when Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches some of the very most fundamental things about what it is to be his follower, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Before we come to the end of this study, I thought I'd check with you how it's gone. How, how did you find Jesus' teaching, either the preaching of it or, or the reading of it or the studying of it? of it in discipleship groups how did you get on with it take a moment in your bible there or your journal flick back or scroll back on your phone chapter 5 chapter 6 chapter 7 the headings try to remember some of the stuff that we talked about let those titles maybe trigger memories for you and so i ask you what what have you made of all this? What did you think of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? I ask you because Matthew's good enough to tell us what the first audience thought when they heard Jesus teach this stuff. Look at verse 28, chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. I love how Peterson puts it in the message. He says, when Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They'd never heard teaching like this. Isn't that lovely? I have to say, as I've studied the text this time, as I've written sermons, as I've been preaching and, and talking with many of you, about what God's been teaching us in his word. I, I've enjoyed the Sermon on the Mount more than ever because I think I'm beginning to see it for what it is. It's one thing. It's a glorious invitation to life in the kingdom of God. Let me remind you very quickly how this sermon works. Flick with me as we go, chapters five to seven. Jesus begins the sermon with the Beatitudes opening verses of chapter 5 and he's dealing with the who question of the kingdom. Who's invited 
who's able to be a part of this? Who's blessed as they find life in the kingdom of God? And the great news is that the poor and the poor in spirit are invited, those who are mourning and those who are persecuted, even those who are normally regarded as unfortunate in life can be blessed, can be happy because they're welcome in the kingdom of God. In a very short section of just four verses, verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5, Jesus deals with the what question. What are kingdom people to be doing? What's the kingdom on earth for? It's a community of salt preserving a corrupted world. We learned it's a, a community of light that helps lost people find their way home. In the rest of chapter 5, Jesus begins to deal with the how question. How would a community ever be a community of salt and light? Well, it won't be by legalism and rule keeping. It'll be by allowing God, to, the Spirit, to write his law on our hearts. Rather than being people who don't murder and feel good about that, we're people who set aside anger as well. Rather than being people who don't commit adultery because we're not brave enough to and can't quite get away with it, we're people who set aside the lustful thoughts, who don't nurture uh, impurity in the heart. With these and other examples, Jesus shows us that righteousness in the heart exceeds any legalism of the Pharisees. In chapter 6, he keeps going with this how of the kingdom. And as he does so, I, I think as I look at the whole of chapter 6, I see actually just mostly one thing. He invites us to live in our Father's world. In the Sermon on the Mount, in three short chapters, Jesus refers to his father 15 times, but 10 of those times in chapter 6. He's teaching us to recognize, as he did, that we have a father and that he loves us and that he cares for us. Jesus is asking us to live as if that's all really true. Because if we can learn to live before the Father instead of other people, we won't worry anymore about trying to impress other people, not with our giving and our praying and our spiritual disciplines. We'll simply live before an audience of one. We'll live before the Father. We won't worry about possessions or, or wealth or what we need for tomorrow any more than a young kid worries. Because our dad's got it. There's going to be food on the table. He, he'll look after us. And, and as we move into chapter 7, Jesus is still inviting us to live in our Father's world. He's, he's inviting us not to judge people any longer or to manipulate them, but simply to ask them for what we need and to ask our Father because he's the one who knows how to give us all the good things that we need. Let's, let's bring this sermon to a close now in this closing section, verses 13 through to the end of chapter 7. Jesus is wrapping up his teaching. It's decision time. He's, he's challenging his listeners. He's looking in the, in the eye and he says, I have been teaching you about life in the kingdom of God. 
are you going to enter it? Are you going to live that life? In these verses, Jesus, he, he puts that decision before us actually by way of warnings. He warns us about missing out on life in the kingdom of God. He does so by four contrasts. We'll look at them quite quickly. Verses 13 to 14. He describes two gates and two ways. On the one hand, there's a narrow gate that leads to a hard way. Few people seem to find it. On the other hand, there's a, a wide gate that leads to an easy way. Lots of people find it. After all that Jesus has told us about the kingdom of God, he admits that this isn't going to be for everyone. Living the life of the kingdom requires us to submit to, to God as king. Some people just won't be willing to do that. Instead of taking this, this hard road that leads to life, they'll, they'll go through the wide gate, they'll take the wide road, they'll, they'll just go easy along with everyone else, uh, and they'll hurtle down that road without giving it any thought. Jesus doesn't shy away, does he, from telling us where that road's going? As people continue to ignore God and to do their own thing, eventually their chosen path leads them to destruction. Folks, I find that a, a warning that we just need to pause with this morning. On a Sunday morning, when you're the kind of person who comes to this kind of a place, it's easy to make assumptions. It's, it's easy to make a, an assumption that I'm on the right path. There's a kind of a casual churchgoer mentality that says we'll all get there in the end. We meaning us, every last one of us. We're, we're, we're here, we're, we're in this room. That must mean that we're heading in the right direction, that we're on the right path. According to Jesus, we will not all get there in the end. It's only those who've, who've, who've taken the narrow gate, who've turned aside from that, that highway that so many people are on. Only those who have given themselves to trusting him who will find eternal life. So in, in the first of his pictures, Jesus warns us to be careful of what road we're taking. In the second picture, he warns us to be careful of who we're listening to. Verses 15 to 20. Watch out for false prophets people who aren't what they appear to be. Uh, outwardly, these folks look like harmless sheep. They, they blend in with the rest of us, sheep in the flock. But inwardly, they're, they're really only thinking about eating sheep because that's, that's what they do. They're wolves ready to devour us when they want. Jesus goes on to tell us how you can spot a false leader. He uses an illustration from the biology syllabus. He says that a good tree must bear good fruit. Uh, as a sick tree, a bad tree must bear bad fruit. It's the same with people, he says. Do you want to spot those who are pretending to be one thing but are really another? Then just, just pay very little attention to what they say. And pay a lot of attention to what they do. What they do 
is an accurate indicator of the kind of person they really are. Folks, a couple of weeks ago when we were last in Matthew's gospel, we were looking at Jesus' teaching, warning us against judging other people. And that command stands. We're not to be judgmental people. But we said back then, and today we go a little bit deeper, it's important for a disciple to be discerning. Jesus says that, that we need to be discerning, particularly in the area of leadership, who we who we give an ear to, who we listen to. Jesus is warning us, if you're going to find life in the kingdom, you can't be naive. Don't, don't allow a leader to influence you if you doubt them. Watch them. Watch the kind of life that they're living. Are they producing good fruit? And folks, I think it's natural for us to, to ask the question, well, what, what would good fruit look like? Well, bear in mind, Jesus has been teaching us here about the kingdom of God. Surely good fruit is, is fruit in keeping with the kingdom. Ha have a look at this leader who stands before you and ask yourself these kind of questions. Does this person know the king? Do they trust the king? If I listen to their teaching, if I follow their example, are, are they going to bring me further into the kingdom? Are they going to help me into a likeness to the king? If they're not, they're a bad teacher. By their fruit, you'll know them, Jesus said. In a third picture, a third contrast, Jesus tells us that the people who've really grasped life in the kingdom aren't, aren't just those who talk most uh, about spiritual things. It's not always those who have Jesus most on their lips, he says, calling him Lord, Lord. Instead, very simply, a, a person who, who enters the kingdom of heaven is, is a person who does what Jesus has been teaching. Or in Jesus' own words, the person who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Folks, maybe, maybe you'd know what Jesus is talking about here. It's easy to talk up a, a spiritual storm. It's easy to, to present in a particular way. But, but a, a real, true, simple commitment to Jesus is sometimes very different than that. It doesn't matter, Jesus says, if a person's prophesied, if they've cast out demons, if they've done miracles, all in his name, if they haven't done the will of the Father... Jesus says he won't know them in the end. He'll have to turn them away. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. As I was reading this and reflecting on it, it struck me that this, this kind of warning probably applies most to those of us who are most religious. A, being a true follower of Jesus doesn't consist in saying religious sounding things it doesn't consist even in doing spectacular things in jesus name it's very simple here it's putting our trust in jesus 
And, and that means not, not trusting him at one moment in our lives and then ignoring him for the rest of our lives, hoping we'll still gain entrance to heaven. That's not trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus is putting our trust in him at one moment and then learning to live every moment of every day increasingly, relying on him, trusting him. This is the way into life, Jesus says. He uses a fourth picture to close his sermon, that of the wise and the foolish builders. Along with the three contrasts we've already looked at, uh, Jesus is deliberately splitting his audience in two. Did you notice that? There's no, there's no middle ground. There's not the, the narrow path and the wide path and a, a, a middle width path in the middle. There's not building on, on sand or on rock and, and building on reasonable foundation. He's, he's deliberately dividing his audience. On the one hand, there are those who have heard Jesus and they don't take him seriously at all. They find that the, the gate's too narrow for them or, or the road too hard. And the idea of changing how they live, it's just too much for them. They hear Jesus' words, but they ignore them. And the end in Jesus' story is that when, when the storms of life come, and, and they will inevitably, when that final storm of death comes, this person crumbles and falls like a sandcastle on the beach of Hyde Peninsula. And on the other hand, there are people who've heard what Jesus has to say and, and they take it to heart. They make their way through that narrow gate they, they walk that harder road and they seek first the kingdom of God and live their lives under his rule. And as they do that, Jesus says, it may not be very dramatic, it may not be noticeable even, but what they're doing is that they're building their whole life on a rock. They're building a life that can stand up to anything. It's a life that's eternal already now because it's already lived in the eternal power of God. It's a life that can stand through the storms of this life, the storms at the end of this life, and anything that lies beyond. Folks, those are well-known passages I thought the best thing I could do is maybe spend the last few moments trying to, trying to settle what's at stake here with this passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What's at stake here is life, life itself. It's, it's whether you and I are going to live the life that we were created for, life in the kingdom of God under the king or not. That's what's at stake. That's been the glory, I think, of this Sermon on the Mount. We've learned so much about the life of discipleship and life in the kingdom. You'll, you've noticed that I've moved quite quickly there, quite easily, between talking about the kingdom of God and discipleship as if those are one and the same thing. Is that valid? It, it absolutely is. Let me show you. Flick back for a moment to chapter 4. <coughs> It's here that Jesus first, uh, his teachings first introduced in Matthew's gospel with a summary in verse, four, uh, verse 17. 
Matthew 4, verse 17. Matthew summarizes Jesus preaching like this. He says, Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We, we talked about this. Repent, stop going the way you're going. Turn around, come through the narrow gate. Walk the harder path. Build your life on the rock. Come into the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' invitation. But keep reading. Just a few verses later. No, so, no sooner has Jesus' message been summarized as repentance to enter into the kingdom than verse 19, we find Jesus saying to a couple of fishermen how, how we do this. He says, come, follow me. That's the language of discipleship. So the same Jesus who calls us to be his disciples, who calls us to follow him, is the one who's invited us to repent and to find life in the kingdom of God. Because the very thing that he calls us to when he calls us to be his disciples is to be apprenticed to life in the kingdom of God. It's to learn how to live in the kingdom. Faithful followers of Jesus Christ, to use our language here at Hamilton Road, are people who are learning to live in the kingdom of God. Think about it for a moment. If you're with Jesus those three years as his disciple, his apprentice, what are you learning most of all? Before you're learning any particular words or phrases or actions, what are you learning in an overall global kind of a way? Are you not learning from Jesus Christ, the one human being who ever, the, the one human being who lived fully in the kingdom, who lived in his father's world, who lived as a citizen of the kingdom? Are you not learning from him how to live your life in the kingdom of God? Jesus shows and tells the kingdom and he invites other people to come and join him in it. Folks, that's the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the invitation Jesus extends to you and I. As disciples of Jesus, we're with him. By his grace and by our decision, we're with him. And we're learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. Let me put it like this. I'm learning to live my life as Jesus would live it if he were in my shoes. I'm not necessarily learning to live all the, to do all the things that Jesus did because he, he had a very particular calling, as you know, and a, and a very particular person. But I'm learning to live my life as he would live it if he were in my shoes. Isn't that just staggering? This is what Jesus offers, life in God's kingdom, life in our Father's world. And yet, so few of us, so few find it, Jesus says in this passage this morning. Small is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. This, this begs a question, and with this question I want to close. Why do so few people find life in the kingdom of God? If this is such a beautiful way of life, why, why doesn't everybody flood into it? 
We don't find life in the kingdom because we're not willing to pay the price, to face the cost of life in the kingdom. The cost is repentance. The cost is that turning away. It's leaving the kingdom of Christoph to come into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christoph, or whatever your name is, seems such a beautiful place. The place where we are king. The place where we're in control. The place where it's all about us. It seems such a wonderful place, and it seems such a high price to emigrate from that kingdom and to go and live in the kingdom of God. Folks, our kingdoms are pitiful. They've got idiots in control of them. They're tiny. Their borders are closed. We need God to open our eyes to show us something different. We need God to show us that any cost that there is to enter into his kingdom is tiny compared to the cost of missing out on life in his kingdom. That's what Jesus does for us. One last passage for two or three minutes. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, look with me at verses 44 to 46. Jesus tells a couple of stories that carry way more, way more freight than these few short words should be able to. He says, the kingdom of heaven's like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he found it. There's so much power in these deceptively few words. Let's mine their meaning with a few simple questions. What price did these guys pay? Have a look. The guy who found the treasure sold all that he had. The guy who bought the pearl, he sold everything that he had. Whatever they're buying, it's cost them everything that they had. Second question. How do they feel about the bargain they've struck? Have a look. We're not told about the pearl guy, about how he feels, but we are told about the treasure guy and how he feels. These, these stories are, are deliberately told as a pair to reinforce their message. So I'm going to suggest that they both feel the same way. How do they feel about the bargain they have struck? In his joy, he went and sold all that he had. Third question, how can a person sell all that they have? How can you lose everything and still be full of joy? I'm, I'm sure you can see by now where Jesus is going with this. They've found something. And it's something that of such great value that everything else fails by comparison. Nothing else matters. When you see it, nothing else is even on the table. You might say they've won the lottery, but I think that does discredit to what Jesus is talking about here. These guys have found something that finally makes life worth living. They have found life. Final question, what was Jesus actually talking about? 
actually tells us, doesn't it? Verses 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. It's this life Jesus has been telling us about. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. Life in the kingdom of God, if it costs us all we have and it might, we'll, we'll have the bargain of the century. To those who find it, who see its true value, who enter into it, they're going to be like that guy who, who found the treasure in the field. They're not going to feel hard done by. They're not going to follow Jesus the rest of their days with a long face. They're going to say, I got it. I'm in. I found life in the kingdom of God. I pray you will. And I pray you'll know the joy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we've been blind. We've, we've imagined that the life you call us to somehow is a life of loss, a life of less. Lord, forgive me any time I've tried to lead your people or teach your word and made it seem so. Jesus, thank you for rescuing us from our wrong ideas with your brilliant teaching. Thank you for showing us the glory of life in the kingdom of God. And thank you for telling us that we can come no matter how poor or poor in spirit we are, no matter how we mourn today. We're welcome, we're blessed because we're allowed to find our place in the kingdom of God. Help us today to take the step to repent, to get through that small gate, get on that harder road and to do it with great joy, knowing that it's the path that leads to life and it's the path that you walk with us by your spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name.